Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Brought to you by PRTG Network Monitor from Paisler. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This week, we have two interviews for you from the floor of the Dublin Tech Summit, which took place last week at the Convention Centre. The first one concerns computers, which, as we all know, are getting more and more powerful, but there is a limit and a ceiling to what you can do with it. So one alternative to the current model is quantum computing. To find out more, Niall Kitson sat down with Bo Ewald, who is the founder of D-Wave, the first company to bring a quantum computer to the market. I suppose the first thing to ask you is about the attraction of quantum computing in the first place, because you're in the field 20 years, and for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like the technology or the idea has been around for that long. Yeah, the idea actually has been around longer. Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, came up with the idea in the early 1980s, and uh, I was running computing at Los Alamos National Laboratory in the U.S. at the time, and it was their 40th anniversary, and Feynman, who was there in at the beginning, at Los Alamos was there for the 40th anniversary. He gave a talk on inventing tiny quantum mechanical computers. And that was the first I'd ever heard of it. And then a couple of days later, he wanted to see modern computing facilities at Los Alamos. So I took he and other Nobel laureates on a tour. And he said in his inimitable voice, which I won't be able to do, he said, you know, young man, someday all of these big cray supercomputers are going to be replaced by quantum computers. And I had only heard about them, you know, two days before for the first time ever. So it actually has taken a long time to be able to get to even where we are today. We're just, I think we're just approaching the starting line of quantum computing, really. Uh, but the idea's been around for 35 years. So what exactly are we looking at here? I mean, when, when we do hear about quantum computing, we imagine more power in much, much smaller spaces. But what's the theory behind it? Yeah, so the, the theory is, it goes back to Feynman again, and basically what he postulated was that rather than you using computers to try to simulate nature? Why don't you use nature? Quantum is, you know, the universe around us is quantum. So why don't you create a quantum computer that you can just turn loose and it will emulate, I suppose, is the right word, nature. So that's kind of the idea behind it. And all quantum computers, no matter, well, quantum computing, like any other computing, has several key elements to it. One of those is what architecture are you going to use to implement the computer, and then secondly, what technology are you going to use? There are two major architectures that people are exploring these days. One is the gate model architecture or circuit model architecture, which sort of derives from the way that digital computers are designed by connecting a series of gates, for example, to create an an adding functional unit on a regular computer. And the other is a newer idea called quantum annealing, and that's what we're doing. And with the gate model machines, you basically... um, 
um, you, the user, connect a series of gates, a little more complicated than the AND gates and OR gates that we have in digital computing, but you connect those gates and then the machine runs and produces an answer based on how you connected the gates. And in our machine, it's quite different. It's like a, a quantum analog computer. And what our machine does is, if you could imagine that you had a three-dimensional landscape like the Alps, for example, what our computer does without adding or subtracting and just using quantum effects, it finds the lowest valley or valleys in the Alps, probably. So it's probabilistic. It's not guaranteed that you find the lowest valley, but it probably does. And so those two architectures, basically gate model and quantum annealing, are the two architectures people are implementing. And then you build qubits, quantum bits, out of one of several technologies. Most of us are using superconducting qubits, which have been around, superconducting technology has been around a long time. There are a couple of other approaches that people are trying, one called ion trap qubit, and another one is topologic, uh, building a topological qubit, which Microsoft is exploring. So two big architectures, multiple ways to build qubits, but for right now, uh, quantum annealing, which is what we do with uh, using superconducting qubits, um, is probably the furthest along toward applications. And when you made this this leap to settle on one particular type, one particular architecture, it required sort of either an aha moment or a moment of commitment that has followed through for about twenty years now. So, you know, how did you decide that okay, this is the direction we're going to take forward, and you know, also we're going to have enough faith to know that we're not going to be able to bring a product to market for 10, 15 years longer. Uh, so maybe two things. You know, this is one of those, maybe it was a quantum effect or maybe serendipity, but uh, whatever it was, there was there were sort of three things that happened within a few years of each other. One is there were new ideas coming from universities about how you might build a diff- this different type of architecture. Um, Professor Nishimori at the Tokyo Institute of Technology, Eddie Farhi and his group at MIT and others came up with this idea of maybe a way to harness nature using this different annealing type of architecture. So the idea came from there. Then there were two young PhD physics graduate students who took an entrepreneurship class in about 1998. And it was the height of the internet boom. They decided to start a business, wanted to make a lot of money and, you know, and do something good. So they started sort of a physics-oriented business and actually started by collecting patents around things quantum. But in the background were this idea idea of being able to build this different type of quantum computer. Then at the same time in the U.S., there had been a lot of work on building superconducting circuits, and a big U.S. defense contractor at the time, TRW, was acquired by another company called Northrop Grumman, and Northrop Grumman decided they didn't want to be in that business at the time, so they decided to shut it down. Well... The idea came from academia. You had these entrepreneurs who knew about quantum physics, and you had another group of people now who said, you know, we think we could build qubits. And so it was the three of those who got together, and that really was what launched D-Wave on the path that it was. So the company's been actually working on building qubits and then fielding computers for the last, oh, 15 years or a little bit less than that. 
it's a really interesting uh, synergy which you don't see with an awful lot of uh, companies you either hear that they're direct uni- university spin outs it's very rare to feel that sort of uh, three three strand uh, approach yeah it absolutely is it's uh, you know in my long experience in technology businesses it's it is very unique that here was an idea from academia that was never patented I mean they uh, the people at Tokyo Institute of Technology and MIT and elsewhere all thought it was an interesting idea, but I don't think saw that you could maybe ever easily build one. And then you had these entrepreneurs, and the time was right. And uh, and then in addition to that, I guess the other part is to be able to attract long-term investors. So the company was able to attract some brand-name investors from the start, uh, Draper, Fisher, Jurvetson, and Goldman Sachs, and, and uh, others. And uh, rather than looking for a return in two or three years, they were betting that this, in fact, was going to be a long-term play, and it certainly has turned out to be that way. And to bring us up to date then, I mean, your company D-Wave is the first to, to actually make it to market with a quantum computer. So what are your expectations? Well, of course, our, our hope is that we can build a sustainable business, and we're, we're working hard to do that. We've um, both, so we've been pursuing the technology and continuing to improve it, working on software tools to make it easier to use, and then principally working with customers to help get them started on the path to create applications. In the end, this business will be no different than any other computer business in that customers will ask, can you run my application or some part of it? How fast? And what does it cost? And those are sort of the three questions. So so, uh, about five or six years ago, Lockheed Martin became the first customer when the company had a 128-qubit system working. And then about uh, three going on four years ago, Google became the second customer, Google with their partner NASA Ames and uh, uh, NASA's university outreach partner, USRA, uh, targeted at machine learning. They started with a 500-qubit machine, upgraded to 1,000, and now the first 2,000-qubit machine is installed there in Silicon Valley. And Los Alamos National Lab became our third customer about uh, two years ago now. And then we have uh, probably 25 customers who are using our machines over the cloud or via remote access. And the uh, so our objective is to both build the systems business as well as create software to make them easier to use to enable people to develop applications and then eventually build a business that has both systems customers and cloud customers and you kind of go from there. And I think it's something that we saw from the mobile experience that unless you have app developers on board coming up with new uses for a device, the device will flounder. So are you seeing things coming up from developers now and you've gone, oh, actually, I never would have thought of that. Yeah, so it's astounding, actually, what's what's happened. So since we've uh, started working directly with end customers and we have our first version of our cloud access, I'll just give you a couple of examples. So about a year and a half ago, Volkswagen decided they wanted to try a project and a real-world project. And so, they, you know, and there's been a lot of science and engineering-oriented projects done on our machines, but they wanted to try something real-world. So they said, let's see if we can model traffic flow. Let's, let's start with Beijing, where we have access to the GPS coordinates of 10,000 taxis in Beijing, and it's all, there's always congestion there. We said, interesting problem, uh, way too big for what we could do today. Let's take a subset of that and try modeling 
allowing the traffic flow from downtown Beijing to the airport. At any time, there are four to 500 taxis in transit between those two positions, and it's always gridlocked. So after two or three months of work, so it wasn't easy. There's no canned applications. You have to do the work yourself. We did it with Volkswagen. They figured out how to map that problem onto our machine, and then within a second or two, they can get five to 10,000 very good solutions to that problem. And it turns out that on traditional machines, it takes quite a bit longer to get the best solution. In our case, because our machines are probabilistic, the answers are probably within a couple of percent of the best answer, but it's not guaranteed the best. So that was sort of the first application on a quantum computer that you could kind of explain to your parents that, you know, the, the regular people could relate to. And then since, and it got a tremendous amount of press and coverage. Um, but then secondly, there was a fellow who um, uh, said, okay, well, if you can, at a company called Booz Allen Hamilton, a consultant in the U.S., who said, okay, well, if you can apply that to traffic flow, what about a constellation of satellites and trying to, to take pictures of priority targets on the Earth and minimize the slewing or the rotation of the satellites? And lo and behold, he was able to do that. And then one of our customers in Japan said, well, if you can do taxis and satellites, what about doing uh, optimization of internet ad placement on a cell phone. Their business is internet services. The company is called Recruit Communication. So they did a project and lo and behold they were able to, for small problems, be able to do a better job using our machine than they could using existing numerical techniques. And then the last one I would highlight is a uh, company in Washington, D.C. called QBranch who decided to, to see if you could understand what happened in the last U.S. presidential election using machine learning on a quantum computer. And the idea was first to see if you could even do it, and then secondly to see what it might say. And it took, again, a few months of work, but they were able to train the D-Wave machine using the same data that the professional polling pollsters used. And they, they went back about six months before the election on this quantum model that they had, and lo and behold, it started finding little sort of hidden or second and third order effects between the states in the United States that weren't obvious. So if one state shifted a little bit in one direction, there might be a corresponding shift or anti-shift in another state and so forth. Uh, so that was was able to be noticed by the quantum computer, and it never did predict that Donald Trump was going to win the election, but the quantum model predicted that he was he, uh, that he was doing five to ten points points better than the traditional models was. So, you know, I would have uh, never thought anybody would be able to use our machine today to do something like that. So just to, to finish up then on the idea of access to technology, I mean, we're seeing IBM Watson being used uh, as a service where you'd be able to sort of rent time on it. Is, is this a similar model that you'll see with quantum computers? Yeah, so again, I think you'll see both models. I think you'll see some people who have a certain volume of calculations and they want to, and, and maybe their data is secure and they don't want to share it. So I would expect them to buy a system or lease a system and have it on, you know, at their own facility. But then secondly, I expect more people will have a smaller problem that will benefit from some acceleration on a quantum computer and they'll access it over the cloud. So the same, uh, so that access mechanism. And then as the applications mature, then I would expect some people will offer um, quantum computing applications acceleration as a service. I won't try to turn that into an acronym, but, but something like that. So. 
And that was Nile Kitson chatting to Bo Ewald from D-Wave. One of the keynote speakers at the Dublin Tech Summit was NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Deputy Director of Engineering and Science, Jordan P. Evans. He was in town to explain how NASA assembles and keeps teams enthusiastic and inspired about their mission to reach for new heights and reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind. You also got to find out a little bit more about the inside story behind the Curiosity mission and what comes next for Mars. So Jordan, it seems everybody has a space story when it comes to uh, space exploration and NASA and wanting to get into space. So tell me yours. Oh, sure. Yeah, I started in the mid-70s, uh, 1976, with the landings of the Viking 1 and 2 missions to Mars. And, you know, as a kid growing up, um, I was a little bit behind the Apollo program. And so the Viking landings and the notion of um, being able to put something down on another planet, explore another planet, um, just fascinated me. So I got into astronomy. I got a little bit into architecture. And then somebody told me, probably around age eight that I could um, combine the two, be an architect for astronomers and uh, become an aerospace engineer. And so uh, from then on, I really didn't waver other than maybe in high school when I thought about being a musician. And so I still do that on the side. But. So what sort of academic path did you take then? Did you, did you go into sort of study astronomy or did you go into pure engineering? I went into pure engineering, but it was one of the applied engineering. So aerospace engineering was my undergraduate major as well as uh, grad school once I started working. So, again, you, you mentioned Mars, so that's your principal area at the moment. Uh, you've worked on a couple of projects. One is sort of the, the longer term, and, and one is sort of with us at the moment. So, tell us about your, your moonshot idea, if you will, about a, a different way to survey the planet. Uh, moonshot idea. So, um, I mean, my most recent project that I worked on was the Curiosity rover, the Mars Science Laboratory project. And that was really the first time after putting a fixed lander on Mars and then showing that we could drive around a little bit on Mars and then Spirit and Opportunity, which went a little bit further and had a little bit of science, but really putting a robotic geologist on the surface of another planet. It's one thing to observe things from far away and you can learn only so much from remote sensing. And so to be in situ, to be in, in the location and to be able able to do exploration, you know, as, as a geologist, uh, bringing all the lab equipment that a geologist would bring out into the field, being able to survey through this robot, uh, that, was, that was a big step forward. And then precisely landing it in an area of scientific interest instead of just a part of Mars that was safe to land, which is where we had previously gone before, to an area that was challenging, scientifically interesting, and we could pinpoint it down within 100 meters of where we expected to touch down. Uh, it was quite a thrill to do, and the science return from it has been amazing. And that level of precision required, what sort of engineering challenges did you come up there? I mean, you're looking to balance the sort of the payload of, of equipment with something that will be able to navigate successfully. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, so um, it's all about trying to get science per kilogram and science per dollar and maximizing that in terms of the mission. And so we were able to find a way to put as much uh, mass of science instruments on that uh, rover as an entire Spirit or Opportunity rover itself. And so um, in, in doing so, we had to, and there's no GPS on Mars, and the atmosphere is one one-hundredth of Earth, and so um, you can't take a parachute all the way down to the surface like you can coming in from space uh, at Earth. So we had to put Curiosity inside that uh, entry capsule at the right location in the universe so that Mars would come up behind it and it would start to fall into the gravity well. And we said, this is where you are in the universe. This is what you're, the direction you're pointed and how fast you're going. And based on that, this is where you need to end up in seven minutes. 
only data it gets is it senses itself moving from side to side and being buffeted by the atmosphere. And so it starts at about 13,000 miles per hour, and seven minutes later, it comes to rest on the surface of Mars just by start, taking its starting point and calculating its deltas and navigating itself through the atmosphere to touch down. And so um, challenges, problems, parachutes that shred themselves at Mach 2, um, pyrotechnic devices that are supposed to unzip the spacecraft that didn't work initially, you know, as we expected, but we had to get them to work before we were ever going to launch. It's a lot of challenges that go into something like that and a big team. It takes a huge team effort to do that. And when you're talking about the team, I mean, you're here specifically to talk about the team dynamics uh, within NASA and within the projects that you've worked on. So how do you get that balance between, you know, keeping people motivated and people making sure they still see the big picture without disappearing down the rabbit hole of, of very minute engineering problems. Uh, that's, that is definitely the challenge and that's exactly what I'll be talking about today. There's uh, elements of making sure that across, that when you build a team, that there's a diversity in that team, diversity of thought, a diversity of experiences. You have people that can see the big picture. You may, only, you may have people that can only see the details, but you also want a group of people that can stay, you know, stay high and then di- di- uh, dive deep when they want to or need to. And so, so pulling a team together that's able to, um, to move up and down that spectrum, 30,000 feet down to, to sea level, essentially, uh, is critical. Um, we also look for a team that's um, got a little bit of proper paranoia. And they, they're always thinking about what could go wrong. And it's sort of a trait of an engineer anyway. And trying to, you're going to an unknown world with a lot of uncertainty. You've got to be comfortable with that. And you've got to think of all what might happen, all of the uncertainties, all of the unknowns that you might encounter, and then figure out how your system that you're developing as a team would respond to that. And again, people will want to dive into the details of that, but you have to bring them back up and say, did we even get our assumption about the wind on Mars right? So when you're looking to create that balanced environment, um, when you're looking to also assemble people with a specific skill set, but also looking at sort of the personalities involved, because you are dealing with literal rocket scientists here. So what do you look for in a team? Do you, do you go, okay, this guy is fantastic, but he's just not for us? That is, yes. The, um you deal with people that have some amount of arrogance because of their um, capabilities, um, but you don't get very far when you don't when you're unable to work in a team in this environment because these projects are so large and so complex um, that it is all about trying to get people that will help the team achieve a higher level of understanding of what it is you're trying to accomplish, how it relates back to the science, and um, how the machine that you thought you were designing um, ended up being designed and developed and uh, is the system that you have exactly what you thought it was and if not how do you deal with those idiosyncrasies of the the uh, system and of the team themselves so um, you know some people are are tough nuts to work with um, but they won't survive very long in the industry if they if they can't work as a team and be positive and be supportive and whether you're an entry-level engineer or scientist or you're very very senior you've got to be able to display some leadership and a willingness to be humble a willingness to understand that you're going to learn something from others you have to know what you don't know so one project that you're working on that's sort of 
a little bit down the line is exploring the idea of okay we've we've got somebody at something at ground level but that comes with a certain set of challenges especially when it comes to rough terrain sort of the the ideal would be sort of some something that can rest between sort of between the ground and between uh, an orbiting craft if you will so tell us a little bit about what what you would personally like to develop uh, so you're talking about regional scale exploration of, of Mars or other bodies, uh, Mars in particular because it does have some amount of an atmosphere. So there have been multiple studies I've been involved with in the past, a Mars airplane, something that would uh, fly, you'd cover much more distance than a rover could, um, but much closer to the ground than an orbiter would. Um, one of the items that we've got that we're preparing, it's a technology development that we're preparing for the Mars 2020 rover, which is a curiosity-based rover to Mars that will launch in 2020 is a helicopter that we've called Leonardo. So it's a drone for Mars. And the expectation is that isn't the prime mission. It is, it's a technology demonstration that hopefully will help triple the distance that a rover could drive in a single Martian day, a single Sol. And the expectation is every morning that helicopter, Leonardo, would fly for one to three minutes, um, fly a sortie of about uh, 600 meters at an altitude of about 40 meters, and take uh, color digital imagery of the surrounding area, help us identify key science targets, help us identify the cleanest terrain to get to those science targets, then it would safely land away from the rover, send its data back to the rover, and recharge its batteries for the next Sol. So if that works, it, it, um, it'll fly with, uh, MS, with Mars 2020, and then it has the potential, like I said, to really increase the amount of science return that we can get out of a rover mission. And when you're using what is effectively drone technology, um, that comes with a, a massive amount of logistical but also uh, technical um, requirements, especially when it comes to maintenance. So what sort of systems are we going to look at here? I, I imagine we're not going to look at self-repairing robots, but I imagine there's going to be some element of, of remote control uh, rolling maintenance. Uh, yes, yeah, so remote control is a challenge on Mars because when Mars and Earth are on the same side of the sun, the closest they ever get to each other, the one-way light time is still four minutes. And when they're on opposite sides of the sun, it's 22 minutes. So to send a command takes four minutes or up to 22 minutes for that command to, to be uh, received. So there's definitely no joysticking of the flight when you're flying only uh, one to three minutes per sol. And because of the tenuous atmosphere of Mars, um, putting even a 1.1 meter uh, set of counter-rotating blades operating at thousands of RPM, we can only lift one kilogram and fly that around. So within one kilogram, if you think about trying to put cameras, radios, uh, central processing unit, batteries, solar panels, uh, to fly the mission landing legs so that it can touch down uh, each, each Martian Sol, there's very little room left for maintenance. And so as a technology development, the expectation is it's going to be single string, there won't be redundancy in it, and it will last as long as it lasts, just to try to prove out the technologies, and then in the future maybe create a... Um, a flying vehicle that is more robust, that has the redundancy built in so it can handle failures, um, multiple levels of fault protection, those kinds of things. So we're, one thing that we have to ask now when we're looking at the uh, issue of space exploration is the role of private industry uh, running alongside sort of state organizations like NASA. Um, how do you see the two, um, I don't want to say interoperating, but you get the idea. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, we've always, uh, as NASA as an agency has always leveraged industry. Um, and I see, you know, there's this notion of new space now. A lot of these um, less traditional space companies coming in like SpaceX or, or Blue Origin or whatever. And, I mean, they're a positive 
positive in my mind. They're bringing down the cost of launch vehicles um, by driving competition. And at the same time, the diversity of, of private companies that are out there have unique and interesting capabilities. Uh, they do answer to shareholders, but partnering with them uh, to deliver key elements of missions has been and will continue to be part of what uh, we do going forward. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Jordan P. Evans from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's almost our show for this week. The programme supported by PRTG from Paisler, which monitors your IT infrastructure 24-7 and alerts you to problems before your users even notice. To work smarter, faster and better, check out their system. It's quite good at paisler.com. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie. Or listen to us every week online or Fridays or at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty, thanks for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.